Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to read today's Bible reading, which is James 2, verses 14 to 26, and it's titled Faith and Deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith with my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that, this, that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, when I was thinking about what to preach on today, uh, the book of James popped into my head. And that's because um, I, I love the book of James. It's, it's, for me, I sort of consider it like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's full of such practical wisdom that we can apply to everyday life. No matter how old we are, the principles still apply. And so being the start of a new year and, you know, I trust that today might be a good reminder as well and maybe a sort of a, a check-up about how we go about our 2019. Now, if I was to say to you, um, if you were to think about times in your life uh, that had a real personal impact on you, you'd probably say that those times involved other people, wouldn't you? It, it seems that major occasions in our life are never void of people. You know, maybe it was a teacher that inspired you in school and changed the course of your life. I mean, in a very practical sense, I could pretty much accredit me meeting my wife to a teacher because when I was starting high school... I was playing violin and the music teacher was my private tutor for violin. But when I started at the high school, he said, why don't you try a different instrument? I don't have any French horns in my concert band. I'd love a French horn. Why don't you try playing French horn? And so I started playing French horn, got very good at it and ended up joining a band where I travelled overseas and Kelly was in that band as well. Um, So I can basically attribute my wife to one teacher. Um, and even her music teacher was the one that called me and said, hey, can you come 
on tour with us. So, you know, teachers are, are one of those... If you get a great teacher, they have a really special impact on many lives. I'm sure you can think of good teachers and bad ones. But the, the good ones make, make the most positive change. Maybe it was a, a parent whose unconditional love provided you the fostering environment that, that really helped you just to, um, to, to, to become the best person you can be. And as they sent you off into the world, maybe it's a parent that, that you think has really changed your life in such significant and amazing ways. And maybe it's your spouse you know, who's loved you, who's supported you and helped shape who you are over many years. Maybe there's some other types of impactful events that you've experienced that, you know, that maybe they're painful and hurtful. You could probably think of times in your life where you were hurt by someone or by a group of people and that also had a massive impact on your life. You know, maybe you, you find it harder to trust people or to love people or to believe people. You know, these are two examples on different sides of the coin of how wisdom can impact our lives. If we use godly wisdom in our lives and with those around us, we can bring freedom and blessing. Yet if we ignore godly wisdom in our lives, we so easily can unfortunately cause hurt and pain. Many years ago, I went through a quite a painful situation um, that, uh, that came about at the hands of some elders and leaders of a church I was attending. And the details aren't important, but at that time I was uh, a young adult and, and was finding it really difficult. Then one of the elders of our church who wasn't involved, he came and asked if he could meet with me. And I agreed, and what developed over the next couple of years was an amazingly restorative relationship, one that uh, was such a blessing. And uh, this elder, he saw that I was hurting, saw that some of the other leaders had caused that hurt and pain, and he wanted to help me in a very practical way. We met every couple of weeks on a Sunday afternoon. We prayed together, we talked together, we ate together, and he helped me to further understand who I am in Christ, what God continues to do for me, and how important a close relationship with Jesus is. Because people will always hurt us, yes, even Christians. This man truly was acting out his faith in Christ when he met my needs. This man practiced godly wisdom in his life which brought freedom to my life. I received the abundant blessing of somebody else putting their faith in action and applying godly wisdom in all circumstances they come across. You know what? We've got the opportunity to be that person to somebody else as well. And this morning I want to talk about the power that each one of us has to bring that sort of freedom to those around us as we live by faith, where we put our faith into action to bring blessing and freedom to those around us as we look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And James begins this passage by asking a question, what good is it? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And he asked something very practical. If someone in your church family is poorly clothed and hungry and you say to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, yet fail to meet their physical needs, what good is that? 
James challenges his hearers to think through how their saving faith in Jesus Christ might play out in a practical manner. So imagine that we're in the middle of winter and it's a freezing cold day. Gee, wouldn't that be nice right now? Imagine Rob and Judy have come in and all they're wearing is a torn T-shirt and maybe some ripped jeans and it's not a fashion statement. They haven't eaten since Friday and Rob's just withering away, you can tell, as I am. And, but imagine that they've come to church on Sunday and, and I go up to them and say, Oh, Rob, Judy, oh, be warm, be well filled. I'll oh, bless you in Jesus' name. That's, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? To think about the fact that we could do that to some a member of this body, of this church, to, to say to them these lovely, great spiritual words and yet not meet their physical needs is absurd. And I mean, you couldn't think of a more destitute um, picture of, of in, in, in our, our wealthy Australia, could you, of people coming along to church without the proper food, without the proper clothing. You know, it, it's a sad, sad thing to think about you know, and we might not necessarily come across that every day, but it exists. And so to think about that, that that's how we would go about meeting their needs is, is ridiculous. It's like just saying, you know, it's a pious wish. And not only that, but it, it's actually a cop-out. It's actually worse because it's actually refusing to help someone in need. So what good is it? What is the answer to the question that James asked at the start? What good is faith without action? It's no good. It is no good. See, when I was in that that situation I described earlier, there were some well-meaning people in the church who came up and said some some words to me. I won't say say nice words. I'll say words. They said things like, Oh, chin up, you know. God must have something even better in store for you later. Oh, well, obviously it wasn't meant to be. Oh, I'm sure you'll be fine. You've always got a big smile on your face. You'll be right. Don't worry, I'll pray for you. How often do we hear that? And yet these were shallow, meaningless, pious, spiritual words that really did absolutely nothing for my needs. They weren't helpful at all. Yet all it took was for one person to follow up with action and it helped it turn it all around for me. See, all it took was for one person to follow those words with some meaningful action and a dark, hurtful and painful situation started to change colour. See, I'll always thank Enoch for that time and how he helped me. He didn't just say a nice platitude that you might read on a Christian greeting card. But he did life with me, mentored me, helped me in in a practical way. And that's the point that James is making. No point saying stuff unless you follow it up with action. So what good is faith without action? It's no good. What good is your faith if it never impacts what you do? James says in verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead dead. He does not mince his words or sugarcoat it. Faith without works is dead. And it's very clear that if your faith does not lead to action, then it is dead. But you might say, hold on Aaron, 
what about what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2? You know, by grace we've been saved through faith, not a result of works. Are you telling me that I have to do stuff to be saved? That's a valid question you might have. And no, I'm not saying that. You have to do stuff to be saved. And neither is James. See, James and Paul would both agree that the basis for salvation is grace alone through faith. With works not the basis, but the necessary result of faith. Works are not the basis, but the necessary result of faith. A faith that is alive and well is a faith that is active. And James points this out in verses 18 to 20. He says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I think James is pointing out the shallowness of faith that results in nothing. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that a faith apart from works is useless? I like that. So, so you tell me you believe in God? Well, great. You know, that's really good that you believe in God. And, and so you think you, you are saved because you believe in God? Well, that's even better. Because demons also believe in God and they're not exactly going to get into heaven, are they? You know, like that, that's the example that James uses so many people here, oh yeah, I believe in God, or they say, throw around the term, I'm a Christian. I've heard Sam Newman say he's a Christian. I don't know, but if you look at his faith in action, do his works demonstrate his faith? Probably. <laughs> I'll leave that there. <laughs> James points out that a faith that is alive is active because faith without accompanying works is useless. And he gives a few examples. So the question is, what good is faith in action? Well, it's very good. James first gives us the example of Abraham as faith in action, applying godly wisdom in everyday life. He recalls a story of when Abraham was asked by God to offer his son Isaac up as a sacrifice. And we find this in Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abraham, take your son. And in context... Remember, this is the son which is going to be the starting place of God's promise to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky to be a blessing to all other nations. That son. Take your son, your only son. So just to rub it in, Abraham didn't have any other kids. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. You know, Isaac's name actually means he laughs that's what it means he laughs and as a dad there's nothing more precious than hearing your son laugh especially after a good dad joke so take your only son who you love who laughs take him to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about what? is this guy crazy? I mean, I'm sure that if I ever came home one evening and said to my wife and said to Kelly, uh, hi honey, just want to let you know that tomorrow I'll be taking our only son, that son that brings us so much joy and happiness, that son that was promised to us. Well, you know, I'm going to take him up a mountain and I'm going to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering to God because that's what God's asked me to do. 
I reckon within about two minutes, I'd have the police around at my house carting me off to a mental institution. Like, just the concept of that really is crazy, isn't it? If you really think about it, can you really actually put yourself in that position? I know we've probably all heard this story before, but take it in. Can you feel how as a father, Abraham would feel? That's what God has asked him to do, to kill his, at that point in time, only son. And, and can you put yourself in Isaac's shoes and feel how Isaac would feel? See, many commentaries place Isaac as a boy of 12 plus years. So, Josh, you're 10, right? So, you're a bit smaller than a 12-year-old. Now, Abraham at this time was 100. I don't want to be rude, but if you're 10, is there anybody else that is anywhere near close to 100 in the room? Anyone in their 90s? 80s? Who's our, say, our oldest gentleman? If I could just raise your hand, who thinks you're the oldest? It's a badge of honour. Come on, take it. Take it as a badge of honour. Okay, lovely. Well, I reckon, not to be rude again, but I reckon Josh could take you. (laughs) So, if you're thinking about what Isaac is as a 12-year-old, remember, he's a 12-year-old that's grown up as a landowner. His dad's a landowner. As a shepherd, he's been working on the farm his whole life, right? He's 12. He would not have been watching his iPad, all right? He would have been a man body, but just maybe a bit shorter, okay? And his dad's 100. Do you reckon that if Isaac didn't want to be sacrificed, he could have taken his dad down and said, nah, stop this? I reckon he could have. Because at minimum, he's 12 years old. And so... He could have stopped his dad from doing that at any time. And as a son or as a daughter, imagine your father coming to you, getting out the knife and all the other sacrificial stuff which you know about, then getting bound with a rope and laid on an altar to have your dad knife raised in the air ready to strike. That is the picture That is the story that James wants us to be thinking about as an example of active faith. This is not mincing words. This is not a nice little platitude. This is something very serious. For Abraham, applying godly wisdom, putting his faith in action, must have been so hard. Our own wisdom tells us that we should not kill our only son, especially when that son is a promise of God. But Abraham had such faith in God and trusted God's wisdom over his own. See, as, as Abraham, I can almost feel like God, I trust him enough that God can do anything. Even if I kill and burn my son... God can do anything. Maybe he was thinking, well, maybe God can raise my son, give him back to me. Because otherwise, how could you go through and be in the position of about to strike? Like, if you think about all the the machinations behind that, all the feelings, all the thoughts, and 
this wasn't like a quick trip down the shops, right? This was a hike up a mountain that he had time to pro that they both had time to process this situation. See, James says in verse 24, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And for James, faith alone means a, a bogus type of faith. A mere intellectual agreement without a personal trust in Christ that bears fruit in your life. See, Abraham's faith was not bogus. He was prepared to kill his son. This bogus faith reminds me of the story in the Gospel of the peoples who who would say loud prayers on the street corner. They would be so eloquent in these finely crafted prayers and and they would go out into the street corners and they would say these, these amazing prayers so that other people could not pray with them but could marvel at the amazing prayers that they offered. It's just just bogus to me, isn't it? Does that it's come across as bogus to you? I mean that's why it's in the gospels to show you that, that what what a bogus faith is. Or all the other people that would actually have a a throng of people around and and crying out, "Oh, oh, so such and such great person are about to donate large sums of money to the church." You know, "Oh, oh, congratulate them. Yes, well done." And that actually do this as this person was walking into the the temple to then place this large sum of money in the offering at at, at the temple, and they would have these these I don't know how else to describe them as but but these groupies coming along saying oh, aren't you amazing? You're so good. You know, they were being paid to celebrate this person giving money. Like, that is just complete bogus faith, isn't it? And they weren't giving out of, you know, the, the, the core, you know, they weren't giving in a way that would hurt them. They were giving out of their abundant excess. That's why they could pay these people to celebrate them and celebrate the good thing that they were doing. That's the Gospels giving us an example and Jesus speaks against that bogus and phony faith. I mean, consider what he says about the, the widow who gives the, the tiniest, smallest coin, you know, because that's all she had. That's what Jesus says is, is, is faith in action. That's, that's a proof, a, 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 a test of, of true faith. Is that, 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 well, that was a real example of what real faith is, not a bogus faith as what James says. See, because James expects that faith in Jesus will bring a change in behaviour. Good works are the result of faith. And he also uses the example of Rahab hiding the spies as well. Her actions of hiding the Israelite spies proved her faith in God. And these are two examples that show no matter what your station in life, whether you are a wealthy male landowner of good standing like Abraham or a sinful woman from the lowest of standings like Rahab, active faith is proved by your good works. And he concludes this passage by saying, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now at present I work at a cemetery and uh, this verse speaks so much more loudly to me now than it ever has before. You see, I have seen many bodies apart from their spirit. I see dead bodies most days. Um, And it is unmistakable when the spirit leaves and a body is left behind 
And for most of us, we've lost someone and that might bring up that memory for you now. And I don't mean to do that in a way that um, is disrespectful at all. But you would agree with me that when the spirit leaves a body, what's left behind that body, it still sort of looks like the person you loved, but they've gone. And this is what James likens faith without works to. You know that the true essence, what made that person the person, what made that faith the faith, what made it real is gone. They've left. Yet faith in action, on the other hand, it brings life and freedom. And the contrast couldn't be any starker. So how can we apply this passage of Scripture to our lives? Well, it's pretty simple. Put your faith in action and bring life and freedom. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 10, uh, Paul writes this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works for us to do. And these good works are not an afterthought. They were prepared in advance. As we walk in faith, we should be doing good works because they bring life and freedom. And on this point, we should be supporting and encouraging those around us that are putting their faith in action and are working hard and are doing those good works that God has prepared for them to accomplish. And so, on the flip side of that, we should encourage, but we should also not be speaking against the good work that God is doing through other people. He has prepared them for times such as these and he has prepared in advance the work for them that he wants accomplished. We should be cheering these people on. We should be supporting them. We should be getting behind them. We shouldn't be looking at what God is doing through somebody else and thinking, oh, well, where's mine? We should be encouraging what God is doing in and through other people and the good works that he's accomplishing through others and maybe looking for where we can involve ourselves in what God is doing. And God in wisdom also demands that we support the leaders that God has placed over us, to trust them, to support them, to get behind what he is doing through them and through his church. See, God appoints leaders over his church to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And so maybe we need to be reminded of what a faithful and God-honouring response looks like when it comes to supporting our leaders. You know, one of the hardest things I think in a church is to be a volunteer, is to volunteer and, and to be in a leadership position in a voluntary capacity. You know, who in their right mind would ever put their hand up to be a, an elder or a deacon? You have to be crazy, a little bit crazy to do that. But it's works that God has prepared for these people to do and that is why we should be encouraging and celebrating the good work that our leaders do in our churches. Because as we walk in faith we should be doing good works because they bring life and freedom. We should be encouraging and cheering those on that are doing good works too, especially our leaders. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love this because if you extrapolate this out, then that means that the result of our good works may lead others to Christ because our good works are a witness. How good is that? Our faith in action will bring bring the best life and freedom in somebody else ever possible, their salvation. And you know what? 
God promises that he will resource our good works too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, it says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now this verse does not say God is able to make some grace abound to you so that having some sufficiency in some things at some times you may abound in a few good works. No, no, no. This verse says all. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all all times you may abound in every good work. What is God able to do? All. Not some, but all. He is the God that has all the resources and he has promised to resource our good works so that we can bring life and freedom. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I think this is one of the most important things that we do when we gather as a church body on a Sunday. That's a day we've chosen to celebrate, you know, the good work that Jesus has done in our lives. And it's a way that we can come together and to stir up love and good deeds in each other. You know, that's a great thing that we can do here when we gather together. And I want to do that as Hebrews challenges us, I want to stir us up to love and good works. Those good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Those good works that Jesus says will shine light into the darkness and bring glory to God. Those works that God will resource, that we will have all sufficiency to complete. Those works that James shows us are the proof of our saving faith in Jesus Christ. Those works that bring life and freedom. And so you may not necessarily come across people who are poor and hungry as James gives us the example, but they're in our community. And maybe God is calling you to meet the physical needs of people in our community. And if you feel the Spirit is leading you to do something, well, don't ignore it. You know, if we ignore it, then it's it's like, you know, turning your back on a friend. If, If the Spirit's leading you, don't ignore it, but put your faith in action and bring life and freedom. You know, and studies have even proven that, that helping somebody else is better for the person giving than the person receiving. So, so it's like a, a double bonus. You get to help and you get that amazing rush of endorphins and other sort of things that, that studies have proven show that it's a, a massive blessing to the person giving, even more than someone who's had their physical needs met. You know, maybe God is calling you to meet the emotional needs of a person in your life. And I'm sure that you can think of someone in your life that could do with some emotional support, someone who could really appreciate an ongoing intentional encouragement and support relationship where you can, you can help them, where you can cry with them, you can sit with them, you can laugh with them and maybe be the emotional support that you need. Maybe that's one way you can put your faith in action. Maybe God is calling on you to meet the spiritual needs of someone in your life. Maybe you've got a friend who's a a new Christian and could really benefit from an intentional discipleship relationship where you read the scriptures together, where you pray together, where you worship together and encourage each other in your faith. Or maybe you've got a, a friend or family member 
You need to persist in praying for their salvation, their greatest spiritual need. Maybe there are some things you can do to sow some seeds of faith in their life through your interactions with them. Now, a few years ago, I was speaking with my brother's grandfather-in-law, um, who at the time, he was 92. And uh, he was telling me about how only just recently he had the joy of leading his brother to Christ, who he had been praying for and sharing the gospel with for over 70 years. Now that is persistent faith. That's persistent prayer. That's, that's a persistent that just goes on for a lifetime. You know, and he's 92 and had the joy of leading his brother to Christ. You know, he's now with the Lord and I just think of the joy he must have in knowing that when he left this mortal earth, this, what was the word, the mortal coil or whatever the, the terminology is, that he had accomplished an amazing spiritual work in somebody else's life, someone who cared for so deeply and after 70 years, how amazing is that? Maybe that's an encouragement to us all to keep persisting. Maybe it's a one of our siblings, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child, but persist in prayer, sow those seeds of the gospel and you never know when that seed of faith might bloom into an amazing new life in Christ, bring life and freedom. You know, maybe God is calling you to put your faith in action in your finances. You know, preachers should never talk about money, should we? No, 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 no. You're not supposed to talk about money. You're a church. All you want is my money. No. When you're a Christian, God wants how much of you? All of you. And if we are holding any part of ourselves back, our emotions, our physical, our financial, then how does that work with our faith in action? And I've got a bit of a, a, a quick self-check on how you're going and applying your faith in your life. And they are these. First of all, how are you spending your time? Does how you spend your time reflect your faith in action? How are you spending your talent? Does how you spend your talent reflect your faith in action? And how you spend your treasure? Does how you spend your treasure reflect your faith in action? You know, maybe today is that you know, line in the sand moment where you've been stirred up towards love and good deeds with your time, talent and treasure. It's a nice quick little self-check we can all do. Maybe there's something in there where the Spirit's leading you and saying, hey, Come on, you know this is this is where you really need to, to to do some improvement. You need to do some do something extra. You know, maybe you've been neglecting something, and you you know God's speaking to you and saying, you know, you know, you know, you know. <laughs> maybe that's where you are. See, wisdom brings freedom to those around us as we live it, as we live out our faith in action. How can we apply godly wisdom in our life? How can we put our faith in action? Who can you help physically, emotionally, spiritually or financially? How can your light of faith shine brightly? Just decide on something today. You know, and, and do it. Like it, it's, it's, a, it's sort of the step that we sometimes forget in how do we apply the scriptures to our life. You know, we come up with all these great ideas, but then we just that that's where it stays for some of us so long. So maybe we just do it. 
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing blessings that you've given to our lives. Lord, we thank you for igniting our faith in you. And so, Lord, today we want to to reflect that faith in practical ways. We don't want to neglect doing good things and having our our faith turn into something that is that is a mere uh, shadow of what a, a true faith is. But Lord, we want to be active in our faith. We want to be doing things. And Lord, you know, good works are the necessary result of an alive and active faith. And so, Lord, I would pray that you would encourage each one of us here to do those good works which you prepared for us. You know, we are the only people that can do things that you prepared for us to do. And so may we not miss out on the blessings that accompany doing those good things in, in, in faith uh, and in a response of faith to your calling and to your leading and your guidance. And so, Lord, we do indeed thank you for the amazing grace that you've given us that has saved us and that we can, can celebrate that life and freedom we have in you, Lord Jesus. And so as we close our, our, our service here today and, and we sing this song, Amazing Grace, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and stir up our hearts to love and good deeds. Amen.